We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. I've been trying to find that Let's Play It Cool clip for ages, and it turns out it's from the launch of Apollo 5 on the 22nd of January 1968, which was the first unmanned flight of the lunar lander. Oh, perfect anniversary. Mm. I know, exactly. Almost as if it was planned. <laughs> Welcome to the first Space Boffins of 2018. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this is Sue Nelson. Hello. This time you'll get to hear me attempting and failing to play it cool when I experience what it's like to be an astronaut floating in space. We'll also be celebrating the little-known story of Britain's Skylark rocket and the history of women in space with our guest Libby Jackson, human spaceflight and microgravity manager for the UK Space Agency. Now, Libby, you're here partly because you're also the author of uh, this new book, A Galaxy of Her Own, Amazing Stories of Women in Space. We'll talk a bit more about it later, but are the days over when space was pretty much men only sadly not really i wish i could say yes and it's getting better and i'm really really proud that the uk space agency we're about 50 50 it blows my mind we've actually got a few more women than men but across the industry there aren't enough and we need to get more people in we need to get everybody understanding that the industry is somewhere that everybody can come and work And the great thing is your book helps put that message across and I'm looking forward to discussing it. But we are going to start with uh, Women in Space, practically with my flight in the European Space Agency's newest zero-G aircraft. It's an Airbus A310. It's owned by Novaspace and flies from Bordeaux Airport in France. And by performing a series of parabolic flights, this plane is used by astronauts during training to simulate being in space. For most of the time, however, it's used for science. So before I experience weightlessness myself for the first time in a netted cordoned off area of the plane, I got a tour of the aircraft with ESA parabolic flight coordinator Neil Melville. In we go, past some seats. So not all the plane is a laboratory. No, indeed. Of course, for taxi takeoff and landing, we have seats just as normal. Um, we have to be uh, belted in, just as you would on any other flight. There's a safety briefing, a, a lot like any other flight, with a bit of extra information, of course, for how to handle yourselves during the rest of the time. So how many experiments on board? We can see quite a few people gathered around another of, number of workstations. There are 12 experiments on board in total. Six of them are student experiments from the ESA Education Office Fly Your Thesis programme university students from from all over Europe that designed their experiments and been selected specifically for this. It's quite a strong competition. And the other six are are professional experiments chosen by the Space Agency. And will some of these professional uh, experiments, will they go further? Yes, well quite a lot of them are already frequent flyers. They need uh, a lot of data, so they've been on multiple campaigns. But one or two of them are precursors to experiments that will go on sounding rockets or onto the International Space Station. All right, well let's just walk through towards the cockpit... Now the floor's changed beneath our feet now, for obvious reasons, to a much more softer covering. (laughs) Yes, because not only do you have uh, zero gravity, we also have hypergravity before and after each brabbler. You weigh about twice as much, you would fall about twice as fast. And here's uh, an experiment, UK Space Agency. Uh, Yes, these guys are from the uh, University of Brighton, and they're part of a, a... 
uh, a MAP program, microgravity application program, um, developing uh, heat pipes and uh, thermal transfer, phase transfer technology um, that will ultimately be used uh, for, for spacecraft, for thermal control of spacecraft. And this particular experiment is one of the precursors that's going to fly on the International Space Station in a couple of years. So we'll pass a another few experiments uh, to our right and left, where there are groups of students all the way, and now we'll just uh, head from the soft part of the floor again onto a hard bit of flooring. A normal cockpit from the look of it. There's four pilots in total on the plane. It takes three of them to fly each parabola, one pilot on each axis. The principal axis being the, the pitch. Um, in order to get the zero gravity, uh, that pilot has to constantly control the plane to be slightly nose down so that the wings don't give any lift at all, all the way over the parabola. A second pilot controls the roll, and a third pilot controls the throttle so that the engines just cancel the air drag. So talk me through then what's going to happen during the, the parabola and during a campaign flight, as they're known, they're called campaigns. Yeah, so a campaign is about two weeks long. We have a preparation week to start with, with all the experiments arriving, passing their incoming inspections and their safety verifications, being loaded onto the plane. That was last week. Then this week we have the, the, the safety day today, getting uh, everyone briefed and up to speed and prepared. And then we start with the flight days Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Each flight day we take off at around 9 o'clock in the morning, a half hour or so flight to the uh, area where we will perform the parabolas, which depends on the weather a little bit. And then each parabola we have 20 seconds of pull up where the plane is angling up into the sky and during that time we get hypergravity 1.8 g, about, about double your normal weight for 20 seconds or so until the plane is 50 degrees nose up into the sky. And then the uh, pilots call injection, and that is the start of the parabola. So the pilot controlling the throttle eases back to just cancel the air drag. Pilot controlling the pitch pushes forward to tilt the nose underneath, and the plane uh, falls over the top of the parabola, which takes about 20 seconds, and during that time we have close to zero G, something like uh, 1% uh, perturbations maybe. After 20 seconds, the plane is 45 degrees nose down, and then, of course, we need to pull out for safety reasons. So the pilot pulls back on the pitch, and uh, we get 2G again for about 20 seconds um, until we've leveled off and flying normally again. So the whole parabola takes about a minute, maybe a minute, 20 seconds, and we do that every three minutes for the next couple of hours. Uh, so in total, each flight has 31 parabolas, giving a total of around uh, 10 minutes of, of microgravity. And how many people are sick? I mean, it's not called the Vomit Comet for nothing. Well, the Vomit Comet's a name they gave to the NASA version um, back in the day. Um, we've got a lot better at it since then, and actually very few people are sick overall. The medication uh, that most people uh, choose to take has been honed over the years um, to the extent that now probably uh, average is, is about two people per flight. I'm that, just that hoping that I'm not going to be one of those <laughs> two. And given that there's 40 people on board, that's only about 5%. Um, and usually those people are sick for one or two parabola, they get looked after by the doctor, and then they can go back to work. Do you look forward to it each time, does it, does it, or do you get blasé about it? I think it's impossible to get blasé about falling out of the sky in a large plane like this. It's a fantastic feeling. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do my job if I didn't love it. So I look forward to each and every uh, parabola. Right, I've been advised to lay down for my first parabolic flight. Tighten my muscles. 
go down into my body as if someone's pressing down on my face and legs. Reminds me of the centrifuge experience. 40, when it says 50, an injection. Oh, whoa. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going up of my own accord. I can see bags floating on seatbelts. Oh, what a... It's like I'm trying to stop myself. Oh, wow. 20. Now I know to come down. Bring myself down. And now I've got hold and I've bumped down. Oh, fantastic. I love that. And now the feeling, I know you've got to keep your head still as the plane decelerates or accelerates downwards. Steady flight. Steady flight. Brilliant. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, as you can tell, <laughs> it's funny, it's not often I'm lost for words, is it? But, you know, and, and a complete coincidence, Libby, you were there too. And I couldn't believe it that we were both there at the same week, but you went up the day after me. How did, how did you find I, it? I loved it. Just listening back to that, it's bringing back such wonderful memories. I was so worried. I know... I don't like doing things for the first time because it's unknown. I was like, oh, am I going to get sick? Everyone tells you the stories about what the drugs are going to do to you. But it was just the best thing ever. Oh, and just <laughs> listening back, really. I'm, can we go and do it again? Yeah. How, I, how I, many people were ill? Well, actually, Libby and I, during that piece, when he was saying, oh, only a couple of people living, and I was looking at him, no. no. Actually, on our flight, five people were ill. And also, several of those were ill from the moment we took the, from the first parabola until the thirty-first. So they've parabola. got thirty-one. They've got parabolas. thirty-one parabolas going up, down, a little rest of a couple of minutes, then up, down again. And I really felt for them mm-hmm. because um, I lied on my medical form. I can say this now because I've done it. Because <laughs> they ask you, do you get motion sickness? And you have to have a full medical to do these. So I, as Richard will um, confirm here, I am sick on every known form of transport to man, except, funnily enough, planes. So I felt it was a white lie, if you know what I mean. I thought, no, I think be all right, because I've been sick on buses, coaches, trains, the Eurostar, ferries, hovercraft, even a swing if it goes on. But actually, that was was fine. Mm. So I was concerned that I would be one of those people who would spend the entire trip I'm not doing that. But as you say, when you listen to that again, you realise that A, the change in sound, because mm. you hear that it's quite loud with the. Then when it does go weightless, the, the sound drops of the engine noise, and you can hear people surprised, can't you? That feeling of, oh, oh. Um, because I felt as if I was being pulled up towards the, the ceiling. Mm. What uh, was- uh, and you can't stop it. it. You just. And it feels natural. That was a great thing. I felt. So at home. Mm. What was the transition like from when you're accelerating and you've got that, that feeling of, of being pushed against a you? Pulled down. Pulled yeah. down and to the weightlessness. Because that's what I found uncomfortable on the centrifuge. It's actually not going far, round fast mm. with the, the gravity. It's that release, was okay. isn't it? It feels like a, a release. It was, of... That transition was uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable, that bit. That 
the, the clip of audio you heard was the very first parabola. Yeah. And you do hear everybody go, oh. And I, for me, what it was, it was the lift of the stomach. And it's that sort of feeling when you go over the top of a bridge. But it doesn't come down again. It just stays. You just keep floating. And the like first time it's unusual. Mm. But by the fourth or fifth parabola, yeah. you're just, you think, okay, this is great. I know yeah. what's coming. And I've seen it so many times. I've been working in human spaceflight for a decade. I've stared at astronauts all the time. And it was exactly like I thought it would be. It was just wonderful. Mm. And I say, I like the fact that I felt, I didn't feel it was unusual. Mm. Once, like you say, once you get over it, you just want to do more Mm. and more. And unfortunately, you can't have that little cordoned area all to yourself all the time because other scientists in between their experiments want to have Mm. a go. And there are obviously the experiments for the scientists themselves. They've got to sort of keep themselves grounded because some of the experiments they had to be seated doing um, cognitive experiments where they're looking at reaction times of the brain and whether there's a difference in microgravity or or not Um, some of them they had to be operating bits of equipment so they had to stop themselves from sort of flying up in order to push buttons or or take measurements and readings so everybody had a lot Mm -hmm. to do and uh, yeah me too I'd love to go back and do it all again how did the experiment go by the way that university because that was why you were there because you were involved in in that yes I wasn't sadly there just to have fun I (laughs) I, I got into the into the free floating area for a couple of a couple of parabolas because we had a problem with the experiment the University of Brighton's experiment is looking at these pulsating heat pipes and so we had uh, this piece of equipment and we had two cameras looking at what was going on um, an infrared one and a high-speed one and my job was to control the high-speed camera to stop it after each complete parabola and uh, the infrared one sadly uh, broke it was a power supply issue we think uh, it was caused by the technical problems that the plane had had in the morning so the, the I went up on the second day I think you were on yes. the first day and uh, we came in that morning and first of all we were delayed because of ice and fog and the weather and we all got on the plane thought great we're going to go now and then um, suddenly the plane just went Mew! And sort of all turned off, and it was the auxiliary power unit. And uh, those problems, they got it fixed, but we think that tripped the power supply. Because it was incredibly cold. It was very, Uh, very cold that day. So we lost some data for that experiment on that day, but we were able to get the high-speed camera, and I hear from the scientists they were still happy with all the data they've got, and uh, we'll go on. And it was nice that you got to go, because um, before you were in your current role at the UK Space Mm. Agency, you were doing outreach, education and outreach for the Tim Peake mission. So you spent a lot of time talking about Tim's mission. You were also, before that, a flight director at the European Space Agency for the Columbus, the um, science module of Mm -hmm. of the space station so you must have felt it's my turn (laughs) this was how it came about I was visiting Marco as part of my job talking to the scientists and in my role I I look after all the scientists in the UK who were doing uh, research on the space station in parabolic flights and things and I just mentioned yeah in 10 years I've never done this and so he said oh you must come and join our team and it was a very great opportunity to see how the whole thing works and as you say I've looked at this for years I've known so many colleagues who have that experience and to now be able to talk about how that microgravity feels is yeah it's really a huge honor because by the the, yes by about the fourth or fifth time I was doing pieces to camera where I was just very fluent I was say you were working as well I was yes I was uh, doing it for a piece for ESA TV so Mm. yes but I I found I could be very fluent and actually be a bit more 
bold because they tell you on your first one to basically try and stay seated. Well, I didn't do that, obviously. Um, you know, but you you are more cautious about what you're doing to get used to it, and then you can start, you know, doing Spider Man at the top. And I did one thing where I walked up the wall. Neil taught me how to do this. You lie lie on your back as you go up, and then as the <laughs> microgravity kicks in, you walk up the vertical wall with your feet. And then you end up completely upside down and then, then come down. And that, I must mm. admit, that was that was just fun for the for mm. the hell of it. Did you get this? It's funny because there have been some snobbery about whether it's zero G or microgravity. Mm. But the plane is called, and on the on the actual fuselage, it says zero G. And then Mark McCochran from the European Space Agency sort of tweeted me and said, it's not zero G. And then the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti tweeted me. So technically, Sue, it's not. And I thought, I know, I know, but... but but people at ESA call it zero G. It's micro. I know it's micro, but... That's why I have microgravity in my title. Yes. Even on the space station, we still have perturbations because you still have everything being attracted to everything else. So you can't get rid of gravity. It's just that it's, as, as Neil said, it's it's much, much reduced. I think 1%. And that's enough for the scientists to study the phenomenon that they're wanting to look at. Now, in uh, as many podcast regulars will know, I'm good friends with Wally Funk, uh, one of the famous Mercury 13. And in October, fingers crossed, I'll have a book out called Wally Funk's Race for Space. Now, needless to say, Wally has done several microgravity flights. I think her first one in her 60s, and she loved it. And uh, we caught up recently in uh, New Mexico at Spaceport America for uh, another reason this time. This was where she hopes to fly into space on board Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two. I have watched this place grow from the very beginning. It's fun to see little by little, the first floor, the second floor, the third floor here at Spaceport, how they're starting to get things together with plants and so forth. But they're, for me, they're not doing it quickly enough. <laughs> We've been down the runway. We've seen upstairs what will be the control room. Uh, there's a space operations center that's in a separate building to us. We're in this lovely sort of curved atrium bit with windows overlooking the mountains and the runway. How has it changed since okay, you first came the, here? The, the glass goes up three stories. So it's been there since it, the building was started. They've just added the floors to me, looking eastward and seeing, say, a windsock and the runway and the concrete going out on the taxiway has not changed. So that part has been pretty much when he started seven, eight years ago. And we've seen a, a model of Spaceship Two that you're going to go up in. Uh, it takes six passengers. There are 17 windows, so you're going to get a pretty good view. Yeah. I'm going to be on the, on the right-hand side, right behind the first officer. I know it always feels slightly out of reach, but do you feel it's, it's almost there? It's, it's getting closer, but I didn't want to wait another year. It um, is getting closer. It is yes. getting closer. Okay, thank you. It's getting closer. I, I know you need thinking. reassurance. Yeah. I know you need reassurance. <laughs> You're sweet. Thank you. <laughs>
Oh, the lovely uh, Wally Funk. And thank you so much to uh, Virgin Galactic for allowing me to be her plus one there at, uh, at that visit, which was actually for ticket holders um, who were uh, waiting quite anxiously, but probably no one is anxious as <laughs> Wally to get up there. I've set up a Facebook page, by the way, as, as well, and a Twitter account for Wally Funk's Race to Space. So please do join in the fun. Now, I checked, of course, to see if Mercury 13 were mentioned in Libby's book. And of course they were, uh, in the form of Jerry Cobb, who was the first female pilot who underwent all three stages of the Mercury 7 astronaut tests in 1959 that, that Wally also later passed and we better explain the format yeah of the so book, the format of the book is um i mean how many women have you got in here libby you know i don't it's over 50 but i haven't actually counted no, I, because, yeah, and i, and I can't put a number on it because a couple of the stories about are about big sure, women, yeah, so. Yeah. so basically yeah. it, it's each uh, each page each spread you have on one side some text about a particular woman or, or group of women and then a picture on the on the other side and i mean there's quite a range i, mean, I just picked out three so i just um highlight this Jerry Cobb, who we just we just mentioned. Also, I mean, you've got some uh, actors, people from fiction as well. So you've got um, Nichelle Nichols from uh, Star Trek, for example. Yeah, she's in there for two reasons. Sci-fi obviously pay, plays a huge role in many people's uh, interest in science and technology, but really, she's in there for all the amazing work she did to encourage women from ethnic minorities and women in general to apply to NASA. Um, originally when they were first looking for female astronauts and then through the years. Today, she is still a big champion of making sure that the space industry hires people from every background possible. And what's heartening is you've got, you know, past, some famous women of the past or lesser known women as well, mm. present and also future people. I mean, there's a couple um, who are really at the cutting edge. We've just talk, been talking about um, Virgin Galactic. You've got Kelly Latimer, mm. who's a test pilot. Uh, and also you've got a, a woman who was um, is one of the senior uh, people at um, SpaceX. Yes, uh Gwyn Shotwell is her name. She's an amazing lady doing great things in SpaceX. She is, I believe, the company president. And so really up there working alongside Elon Musk, making all of these amazing things that SpaceX are doing happen. Um, and what the thing, one of the things I love about what Gwyn says is that failure is a part of what you're trying to do. They think that if you're not failing, you're not pushing hard enough. Which is an engineer's mantra, really. It really it? is. Yeah. You, you need to do that. You need to push the boundaries. And uh, one of my favourite things SpaceX have put out is their slightly tongue-in-cheek look at all the rocket failures that went wrong or the landing failures that went wrong before they have mastered that amazing feat of, of landing those rockets. So, yeah, there's, there's a great selection of women. And I should say that all of the illustrations are from the students at the London College of Communications. I like that, And they're actually. beautiful. Yes, I like that because each one is different because mm. they're done by a different student. And I thought that was a, a lovely touch. And this book, really, I mean, I would say it's aimed at younger, younger women. Is that right? And not just women. I'm very keen that... Everybody thinks they can read it. I, I get really touched when I see little boys reading it, just because yeah. it's so important that everybody sees that women are a part of the industry. I wrote it with sort of eight to fourteen year olds mm. in mind, but you could read it to younger oh, people. I, I really and enjoyed it. Older people would because enjoy reading it. Because for me, it was a mix of the ones that I expected, like your Valentina Tereshkova, Samantha Christopheretti, Helen Sharman, um, Jerry Cobb, who, who we, we mentioned. But also there was the the, the sort of um, the unusual, the women who were the seamstresses um, in the Apollo 
programme. You have, which I thought was a slightly controversial inclusion, really, the Mercury 7 astronauts' wives. The thing that I wanted to bring across there was that everybody sees the astronauts and they're the, the, they're the headline grabbers, they're the people that everybody can name. But their jobs are hugely taxing on their families and the families are such an important support network. And all the wives and indeed the husbands and the rest of the families that I know when I speak to, they all say, I'm just doing my job. It's just part of us. It's, it's part of the marriage. It's part of the relationship. But I think anybody does well in their job if they have that support network behind them. And so I wanted to celebrate that. And the Mercury Seven Wives in particular, they were the first ones who were suddenly flung into the spotlight with no training, no preparation. Their husbands were the ones that the media were were interested in, but then they realised they could go and uh, see these women and they had to suddenly be this amazing uh, magazine-ready version of of an american wife you know perfect in every way and it's not what they signed up well, for or what they knew what, they were expecting um, it's what gene um cernan's wife uh, first yeah. wife barbara said if you if you think going to the moon is hard you should try staying home i think it comes across quite well in the my favorite film uh, apollo 13 <laughs> yes um and i think that's quite you know it's quite nice when you see that other the other side of it and how they have to put on this mm. whole act it really is and, of and not being afraid of being supportive of being dutiful and all these things that are going to appear on the cover of life magazine yeah and and that's that's why i wanted to to mm. put them in there too because well that's a miss because we discussed it on the on the train coming in because when i first saw it i thought oh no they shouldn't be in no no <laughs> and then actually by the time by the time i'd read it and we discussed it mm. i thought actually no that's a really a really good thing to mm. do because you're right because very few people uh, achieve what they achieve in isolation. Mm. For most of us, it does require support of, and uh, help of, of some kind from all areas, it not really just the, the professional side. Mm. Does, does it concern you, or should it concern us, the absence of Russians in here? I'm not, I mean, not just in your book, I'm not, mm. it, but the fact that there are very few, for example, female cosmonauts. Female cos- yeah. cosmonauts. I, I touch on that in there. Russia have a different culture to us, and that's something we need to understand before we just write them off and say it's wrong. Some of the things I read when I was researching the book to understand this, you you sort of read that that Russian women see their place in the home, and they they've they've well, they're not... constantly told to keep, get in the kitchen on the space. Oh, station, they are, but they? but, I mean, but so some different. of them feel that that's what they want to do, and it would not be appropriate for them. And we may view that and say, no, 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 everybody should be having their equal roles. But if they're choosing to do that, then I have no issue with that. But it is sad that in the 500 or so people have been in space, 50 or so have been women, four of them have been female Russian cosmonauts. And I find that sad and, and strange we, we've sort of just we've discussed that on the podcast before as well it, it's almost as if it's a been there done that when they sent valentina up because it was pretty much 20 years before they, before they put uh, and it's svetlana who's in your in your book mm. isn't it yeah and and svetlana only went because again the russians ever aware of the propaganda <laughs> in the first sally they ride. were wanting to beat um sally ride and then the first female spacewalk so it was never about equality or choosing the right people it was all about that propaganda this book tells the story of the human space race and the people who were involved in that. But as we know, space 
is this huge thing that underpins all of our lives. And I'd really like to tell the stories of the people who have put the weather satellites in orbit and the satellite navigation systems yes. that we use and all the planetary missions that we've done out to Mars and Pluto and Jupiter and all of those things. There's so many more women in the wider industry. Well, you I must have made some quite difficult choices because you've got, I mean, you know, Mae Jemison in there. You've got Sunny Williams, mm. the two NASA um, astronauts. There's a nice variety of engineers, psychologists, nurses, all these ranges of women who were involved. And we know from things like Hidden Figures that, um, you know, women weren't absent. We we, we were there and, and things like this helped publicise that. But you must have, you obviously have had to leave women out. Certainly. Um, there, were, there were people I couldn't put in. There were people that I wanted to put in, but I felt they, mm. they didn't fit in the book. Really, my uh, my choices were driven by what have these women done in human spaceflight? And it wasn't good enough just to have gone to space to be an astronaut. Really, I was looking for people who had been trailblazers or had um, in some way played a real sort of key contribution to their area. And uh, there's so many more who were in there, and I do hope I get to write a, a, yes. another book and tell more stories. <laughs> I say it's a sort of book I would have loved. Well, I did, I've enjoyed it now, but if I'd had had that when I, I was sort of 10... I would have. I think I probably would have been even more of a geek. <laughs> but it's nice to know you're not alone. Mm. You know, that's the thing. It's that it was Sally. It was Sally Wright who said, "If you can't, what's it? You can't be if you can't see." That's what it does. Is that it shows you that your face is there mm. and in it's, all its colours and forms and ages and everything. And it's not just astronauts. People no. think you know human spaceflight. They even think space is astronauts. There are roles for everybody um, in the space sector if you want to come and get involved and I hope that message comes across. Absolutely. Well still to come we celebrate the time when Britain was ahead of the Americans in space. It is quite a long time ago. (laughs) This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. (laughs) Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. We're on all the usual social media channels on Facebook. You can see a video of Sue recording her sensation of of weightlessness for the podcast. Uh, We'll also have the usual pictures of our recording today and a link to our fabulous programme on the Voyager missions for the BBC, Space 1977. If you have missed it, it is one of the highlights of the BBC World Service documentaries from the last year, apparently. Yeah, Yeah. it was a world Much as I I don't like blowing my own trumpet. (laughs) Uh, You can contact us via Facebook or by email and uh, we are actually getting better at responding for example uh, we've had an email from jeff in washington state who has a a question about the problems of short-term political thinking when it comes to space exploration and we will get to that in a future podcast so thank you jeff 
Right, well, London's Science Museum is currently celebrating the recent 60th anniversary of Britain entering the space age with a small but perfectly formed exhibition called Skylark, Britain's pioneering space rocket. Originally developed for military use, Skylark was a sounding rocket about seven metres high containing scientific instruments that sounded or, or took measurements of the atmosphere and space during short, sub-orbit- <laughs> suborbital, I can barely say that, parabolic flights. More than 400 Skylark missions took place and the aim of the exhibition is to inform people basically about a relatively unknown piece of British space history and to highlight its scientists and engineers. Many of them, as we'll hear, went on to great things with missions for ESA and NASA. Well, I was at the opening of the exhibition and spoke first to Ken Pounds, Emeritus Professor of Space Physics at the University of Leicester. The original scientific and military aim of the whole Skylark and subsequent satellite programme was to study the atmosphere, to find out more about this, the atmosphere from a scientific point of view, but also from the view of a perspective of the military who foresaw that future wars would be fought mainly with ballistic missiles. So they needed to know the environment through which the missiles were going. But then... Things evolved, and in my particular case, it was the realisation, which of course is fairly obvious, that the atmosphere is controlled by the sun. The sun heats the atmosphere, it causes the ionised ionosphere, you know, which Marconi used to bounce radio waves around the world and so on. So that if you were studying the atmosphere directly with probes, then you should be studying the sun at the same time, particularly where the sun is a very variable source, like in X-rays. So that got that was basically what I did for my PhD, developing some instrumentation to put on Skylark to measure solar X-rays. Now that was at a time when basically it was still not clear whether the sun would be a powerful X-ray source, but we suspected it probably was because we knew of the this outer atmosphere that you see during a total eclipse called the corona. It would, there were reasons to believe the corona was incredibly hot, like a few million degrees, in which case it would naturally emit X-rays. So we, ca- we carried out a few experiments on Skylark and found that to be the case. And, uh, and then, for me, everything changed because an American group run by a guy called Ricardo Giacconi, who then got the Nobel Prize for Physics as a result of that, they found another incredibly bright X-ray source that was nothing to do with the sun, nothing to do with our local environment, and that was the beginning of cosmic X-ray astronomy. Ever since, I've sort of spent my time uh, studying uh, uh, black holes out in, out in space. Three, two, one. John Zarnacki, President of the Royal Astronomical Society. John, I was pretty surprised to discover that you've been involved in Skylog, although I shouldn't be, of course. It's just that we're more used to having you on the podcast with, in relation to Titan. Well, you didn't think I was old enough, no, that's the truth. But I started very, very young, you know, I was 12 years old when I started <laughs> working on Skylark. No, seriously, I started a PhD at University College London and within a few months I was given the opportunity to develop an instrument for a Skylark rocket launch which had been approved. I think when I started I was 22 and the people I worked with were mostly of the same age. 
but we were just given enormous responsibility and it was so exciting, you know. I bet, I bet. Particularly in terms of where you got to do the launch. Yes, well, of course, most of the Skylarks were launched from Woomera in Australia in, in the middle of the desert. I mean, wow, for a, a boy who grew up on the mean streets of London, this was quite a culture shock. But scientifically, it was also fantastic. This was the early days of the new astronomies. You know, obviously for centuries, astronomy had been done from the surface of the Earth using visible light. But of course, the electromagnetic spectrum is enormous, encompassing X-rays, gamma rays, ultraviolet, infrared, and so on. Most of this is absorbed in the Earth's atmosphere. And with the coming of the space age, it gave us the opportunity to get above the atmosphere, build your telescopes and detectors to, to measure this radiation. And it opened up a whole new astronomy. We were able to study very hot, very energetic objects. In my case, supernovae, stars which have exploded, which produce vast quantities of million degree gas emitting x-rays so that's what I was looking at but also the very cold universe you know which produces infrared radiation and the sounding rockets which which now are superseded I mean their day is past but for for probably 20 years they were a really really valuable tool and not just in the science they generated but also the training they gave to people like me. You know, I've used that experience in exotic space projects like Hubble Space Telescope, Giotto to Halley's Comet, Cassini, Huygens to Saturn, and, and so on. So I owe a lot to the Skylark project. My name is Doug Millard. I'm Deputy Keeper of Technologies and Engineering here at the Science Museum. I was the curator for the Skylark exhibition. Skylark I've known about for many years, but it was quite clear that many people hadn't. So this exhibition is largely to bring Skylark's fame and significance to the public eye. And what would you say is its greatest achievement? I've been chatting to scientists whose careers were were made and began by Skylark, but would you say it was the effect it had on people or the effect it had on science, or maybe both? So looking at the the very early Skylark flights, it was that expertise developed which enabled the UK to work with NASA on the world's first international satellite, Aerial One. NASA was, it was quite clear to NASA that there were guys in this country who knew how to build spacecraft. Thereafter, Skylark did uh, loads of science, not least because most were launched from the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, so conducting, for example, the first UV survey of the Southern Skies. But it was a training ground for young space scientists doing their PhD thesis, and they went on to, to great things. So really, a lot of what we see elsewhere in the space gallery here in the Science Museum owes its uh, existence to Skylark. My name's Alan Smith. I'm a professor at University College London. It's not nostalgia. I don't have that feeling. I have a pride, certainly, but also a sense that the world's moved on and this is something that was good in its time. And the nice thing about it is that it's British history as well that so many people have forgotten about. Yes, absolutely, but it also makes you feel a little bit sad that we were right at the forefront 
And now we're not quite as much at the forefront. And so uh, that high position in space has uh, diminished a little bit. We're still very, very well respected. But, I think we uh, punch above our weight, don't we? We punch above our weight, but we were in a different league in those days where we were, we were, we were, we were you know, on par with, with the Americans. And in Skylark, we were leading the Americans. The success and legacy of Britain's first space rocket, Skylark. Was it taking off in the background? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was on a sort of loop on a film. No. That's why you kept hearing it take off several times. By the way, in between going to Harvard and applying to NASA, an American, Jeff Hoffman, actually worked in the UK on Skylark. And then he later became an astronaut and helped fix the optics on the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's a a little snippet I picked up while I was there. Now, Libby, you are microgravity programme manager for the UK Space Agency. So that that was a description, not not an accusation. (laughs) Um, These microgravity experiments, so we've talked about the zero G, we've had Skylark, which essentially went up and came back back down, down again. You've got, I think, the drop towers as well essentially mm-hmm. just dropping something down a tower. I know Virgin Galactic is, is looking to sell space on its Spaceship 2 for these microgravity experiments. Mm-hmm. How much value do they have compared to actually being in, in space and being able to do these things continuously? Every experiment has a different set of parameters. Some people need a long time in space, and that's where the space station is the only way you can do that. But not everybody does, and it's much more expensive to send things up into orbit. Um, The experiments we were doing uh, with the University of Brighton team, they were perfect for the the parabolic flight. We... You could see the phenomena in the 20 seconds, and it didn't matter that you went between hypogee and zero-gee. Somebody I was just talking to the other day was looking at wanting to test a new form of fuel tank. And I was actually saying to them, the suborbital flights that are coming up are probably going to be just the thing. 20 seconds isn't long enough. You don't need to go all the way into space, perhaps. So everybody has a different set of requirements, and we need all these different facilities to to match those. And just on Skylark, you know, a British rocket, if you like. I mean, we're we're getting back at least to thinking about that, aren't we? In the UK, I mean, there's this this launch campaign, a launch UK campaign by the UK Space Agency at the moment to look at a a launch site in the UK. So it, it's looking like we could be back in in the rocket business. We are working to get a spaceport in the UK by the 2020s. That will allow us to have a small satellite launch capability. As you say, getting getting back in there, it would be wonderful to see. We're looking at suborbital flights. We're letting the market decide these things. And that's really where we've come from, from the 1950s. Times have changed, technology's improved. We do everything in the UK based on business cases. It's taxpayers' money. It's got to be done that way. And there's now a market opening up, and we're looking to capitalise on that and make the most of everything for the UK and for our economy. And on a sort of related um, level, you've got something called call, call to Space going on at the moment or something, haven't you? Yeah, this is what I'm working on at the yeah. minute. It's very exciting. The UK scientific community hasn't had a lot of opportunities to get to the space station because we weren't um, part of that program until 2012. And so we've just announced a call for ideas for anyone in the UK from industry or academia who has an experiment idea that they'd like to run on the International Space Station. They can submit that before the end of February. And we're going to, all being well with our budgets, choose some of those to then develop them and send them to the International Space Station so we get UK science to the space station before it's due for retirement in in 2024. 
and details from that. We'll put a link to the, the page on our uh, Facebook page and uh, on Twitter. Well, thanks ever so much, uh, Libby Jackson from the UK Space Agency and author of the wonderful A Galaxy of Her Own, Amazing Stories of Women in Space. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists and we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Do reach out to us, as they say in America, which I <laughs> reach really out. hate. You can only say reach out <laughs> yeah. if you're a member of the Four Tops. Thanks for reaching yeah. out. Uh, so <laughs> reach us via uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We are not difficult to track down. Thanks for listening.